morning? How's your weekend going? Yeah? You want to tell me about it? Okay, later. Welcome to Portico Church, Arlington. My name's Jason. Uh, it's my privilege as we, we open up the Word together today. Uh, as Pastor Reeve mentioned, we are finishing today First John. Uh, this is his epilogue. He's coming back to what he wants us to walk away with. So we'll be in chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, to the very end. And um, if you... Again, if you're a first-timer here or you don't consider yourself a believer, maybe you're, like, you're trying to figure it out or seeking, uh, we want you to know that you have a home here. Um, this is a safe place for you to explore that, to find out what it means uh, that God wants to know you. Uh, that, that's a question that you need to explore, and you can't do it on your own. Like anything that you learn, it takes a community. So we encourage you to, inc- to jump into worship, to explore, to listen, to consider that maybe God has something to speak to you today. Uh, sometimes uh, when we see something in Scripture, it feels like it doesn't make a lot of sense to us or doesn't apply. And today's going to be a lot of that today. <laughs> but, uh, man, if we're going to talk about something today that, it, that is, is, it seems so far away and so abstract, but it's right here and before us. We're going to talk about idolatry. This is how John ends this letter. It seems out of place. It seems abstract. It's like you're going to end with that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, now, you know what an idol is. It's basically a carved image. Uh, it was used in the ancient world, and a lot of times people would use it to um, mediate the presence of a god. If you sacrifice to the idol, then the idol would give you what you wanted, and you'd better have the right idol because uh, deities were tied to localities. Now, we'll sit here and we will laugh at that, but when we really consider what it means to have another God or something that we sacrifice to, something that is so important to us that we will spend enormous amounts of time and energy and resources and emotion in making sure uh, that this thing comes true, then it's not so far away because that's what idolatry is. It's when a good thing, right, something that's good, turns into a God thing and it becomes an essential to my life and I've got to have it. And when I don't have it, there's searing pain, and it feels like I'm losing my life. That is idolatry. And it's, yes, it is strange that, that John wraps up today by saying, and oh, by the way, don't give yourselves over to idols. A good thing that becomes a God thing. If I have this, my life will have meaning, it will have value, I will have significance. I will have security. What does it feel like? I don't know. Well, for you, maybe it's money. Maybe if I have this, um, I know I'll be okay. Maybe it's your reputation. Those are huge. If I have this position or if I have this reputation or people think of me this way, um, then I have what I need. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a relationship. We're going to be faced today with what it means that we are absolutely given over to giving ourselves over to something greater than ourselves. And that's going to happen. This is not a religious thing. This is a human thing. You are created to worship. If you do not worship God, you will find something else that makes your life work. It doesn't stop. The only thing that changes is what you aim it at. So this is not abstract at all. Now in the church, I'm just going to throw this out here. Um, we've used this concept of spiritual idolatry as kind of a pet. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I struggle with the idol of, you know, um, identity or 
we turned it into almost like a personality profile. We drag along with us. Oh, yeah, I struggle with an idol of money. Isn't that cute? Man, this is false worship, right? We do that, and then we'll even start to say, oh, I think that person has an idol. Don't do that. You don't know what you're talking about. Right? Let the Spirit of God lead you by his word. This is not a journey of self-discovery. This is understanding you're finding your assurance in something that is not God. Right? It's false assurance. So we don't want that. Um, all of us need to worship because we were built that way. So think about this. Who's your Savior? Um, or what is your Savior in this way? What do you seek to give you control in life and peace in life? Because that's what a Savior does. Gives you control and gives you peace. Where are you finding that? Um, where are you finding that? If you worship your body, you're always going to feel ugly. If you worship power, you're always going to feel weak. If you worship money, you're never going to have enough of it. If you worship status, you're going to be freaked out all the time that people don't think well of you. Do you see how this works? And it's never going to get better. It never becomes enough. So here's why he wraps it up by saying, don't have idols. Idols will drain your life of every bit of assurance that you have in Christ. It just, it just will. It will be unending. So it's a good test for us. It's good. It's strange that he ends here, but it's not so strange. So as we read this today, he says, this is typical 1 John. He says a lot of things. Some of it feels circular. He's looking at the same thing from 15 different angles. We'll untangle it together. But he finishes by telling us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because if you worship something or someone other than Christ, you've got to let go of God. Right? We don't get to hold on to both. You'll get torn in two. You have to decide who to worship, right? So let's jump into this. So, and if you're like, hey, this is all new to me. I've never heard a sermon out of the Bible before. I want you to consider that, hey, maybe this is how we live. Maybe this is what holds position in your heart. You're finding something that you can sacrifice to you that, that will give you what you want in life. We all think that way. So let's jump right in. First uh, John chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back. Um, and if you need one to take home, please take that home. So here we go. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you. I'm as blind as the next person. I will wrap myself up trying to find peace and control and things that are incomplete, trying to find full joy in things that can never give it. God, this, this, is not a, this is not a joke. 
Lord, we need to see this clearly. So this is your word, Lord. We understand that it is from you. You reveal yourself to us, both as a people, corporately, and individually. So this is what we ask for today. Lord, would you send out your spirit? Would you pour him out into us today that we might behold your word? Would you open up your word today to us that we might see its beauty and behold its treasure, Lord, that we might worship you? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So very simply, um, as we get to the end of this letter, he tells us, if we're going to hold on to Christ, that's our assurance, but if we're going to hold on to him, you have got to let go of everything else. We don't get the ability, we don't even have the ability to worship God and something else. We can get into a mindset and understand that, yes, I do believe in God and the Bible's helpful, so I'm going to sweep Jesus into my life, bring him into my circle. He's going to have influence into my life, and that might be a good place to start, but that's not what God wants. He wants an intimate relationship with you. And it's impossible to hold on to Jesus and hold on to something else at the same time. It will tear you apart. At one point, you're going to have to let go of Jesus or you have to let go of the other thing. So if you're going to hold on to Christ, you've got to let go of everything else. Now, it's, it's a strange text, but he walks us through three, three things that very clearly we've got to let go of. And he's very clear. He gets to the end and he's like, remember this. One is your sin, right? Something we don't like to talk about. If you're going to hold on to Jesus, you've got to let go of sin. Secondly, your control. Um, if you're going to hold on to Christ, if you're going to worship him, you've got to let go of control. If you must have control in your life, um, Jesus is it's not going to work. Uh, and lastly, your plan for peace. If you're going to hold on to Jesus, you've got to let go of it. You've got to let go of it. So let's walk through that. Um, he says we know three more times here. So he's reminding us of what we've learned in this letter. So what do we know from 1 John? What does it mean that if we're going to hold on to Christ, we also must let go of everything else? We need to understand this today, and we need to understand it well. So the first thing he tells us we need to let go of is our sin. Verse 18. We know, right? So what does that mean? We know that's not just a scent. That means we have a conviction that actually comes out in our life, not just in how we talk, but how we think and how we feel and how we live. So we know, we have a settled conviction that everyone who has been born of God or fathered by God, literally is what it says, does not keep on sinning. So we know that. We'll back up just a little bit. In verse 16, he says, And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And oh, by the way, there is a sin that leads to death. I don't say you should pray for that. That's weird. We'll get there. Hold tight. The big idea is this. Grace doesn't make sin safe, friend. We say this a lot. You're saved by grace. It's God's grace that saves you through faith. So it's faith is not a work. Faith is the empty hand that receives the gift of God. Um, but grace does not make sin safe in your life. It doesn't. Uh, in fact, it's deadly. Uh, you cannot simultaneously hold on to Christ and then embrace something that God would call sin. Uh, this is kind of what that does in your life. I don't know if you have anybody here that parachutes. Probably not. I do not. I think it's a bad idea. I do not recommend it. Never jump out of an airplane if it's still running. But if you do, right, it, the, the parachute acts like a wing. 
once you land and hit the ground, if that canopy doesn't collapse and it's windy, it will drag you at great speed across the field until you hit something. That, yeah, it's kind of funny. So you can quick release, get rid of it, whatever. But the point is this. If you're holding on or if you're held onto by sin at the same time, you want to hold position in Christ, it's not going to work. It will drag you like a parachute. Um, and we think of sin this way. You think of sin and I think of sin as my relationship to a certain behavior. Oh, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. The Bible says don't do that. Um, don't hate. Don't. No, it's not. It's not. Sin is, in essence, about your relationship with God. It always has been, and it always will. But, but isn't there, aren't there things that... Te- yes, the essence of sin is not your relationship with your behavior. It's your relationship with God. Understand that. You cannot hold on to Christ and hold on to sin. So what we do is, we think, well, let's find the middle ground. I will try to manage my sin instead of abandoning it. And then I get exhausted, and it never works. Um, and I empty my life of assurance, Right? Um, yes, yeah, so we have got to jettison that. And let's go deeper. What is the sin that leads to death? Because after he says, we know this, if you're born of God, you can't continue to sin. Um, he said, there is a sin that does not lead to death. And there's a sin that leads to death. What is he talking about? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilt on this and a lot of head in the hands to try to figure out what this means. Let's take a shot at it. Um, what is the sin that leads to death. Well, literally, the text says leads towards death. So think of motion. The sin that leads to death has, is moving your life in a certain direction. So if you think of repentance, um, what is that turning from sin and holding on to Christ? We think of that. If, if you're if you're walking in a sin, the sin that, that leads to death is this. Repentance is either delayed, right? You're going to do it, but not now. It doesn't last. It doesn't stick. And eventually, I just refuse it. I'm not going to do it. So a sin, when it comes to you repenting, a sin that leads to death looks like it's going to be done on your terms. It's going to be done in your time. It's going to be done when you're ready. Do not kid yourself. That is not repentance. Right? You are still living as Lord. That sin is still making decisions for you. And what happens is you will reject Jesus either confessionally, saying, you know what, and this is what was happening in this church. I'm not so sure that Jesus matters as much as we think he does. I think he's helpful. I think he's a great teacher. I think he's moral. I think he has good things to say. But when it comes to salvation, I'm not so sure that we need to go all the way there. So you will reject him confessionally, or you will hold on to the, the confession of the church but she will just reject him practically. He will say, yeah, I believe that, but it never works out in your life. There's no sway. There's no weight to his word in your life. Um, that is the sin that leads to death. It's, it's this, it's rejecting Christ. There is no hope outside of the Redeemer. There's no hope outside of the sin-bearing Savior. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find a God that makes your life work. You're always going to find a God that requires great sacrifice from you, promises great things, and then never delivers. So the sin that leads to death is always the sin that ends up letting go of Jesus. And I've had people to my face tell me this. Uh, If you're telling me that this is what the Bible says, then that's, that's going to kill my happiness. I'm not going to hold on to Jesus. I've literally had people say that. So that is the sin that leads to death. Um, And here's why it's not safe. Because 
both death, which he talks about a lot, and eternal life are not just present conditions and states, they're destinies, eternal destinies. What you hold on to takes you to your destiny, right? Eternal life, right? Unrestricted presence with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in a recreated cosmos, or eternal death, as Scripture calls it, hell, the worst of the worst. So this is not a test. This is not a trial run. Eternity is here. So that, that is serious. Grace never makes sin safe. So what is the sin that doesn't lead to death? Well, first of all, it, it puts emotion in your life. Again, it's a trajectory. Um, let's walk through it as far as if repentance goes. Repentance is, is immediate, and it's in practice. I don't think about it. I just do it, right? I'm going to let God run me. So it's 100% on God's turn always. And when I turn from sin, it doesn't make the full circle and end up being back right where I was. I'm turning towards Christ. I'm trusting him. And it's always going to require more of you than you have to give. When people tell you that God will never put you in a situation that's beyond your ability, that is absolutely false. The Bible says nothing like that. In fact, life is beyond your ability. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to get worse. So you will always find yourself in position, especially when it comes to your relationship with sin and God, where you don't have the ability or the strength or the power to abandon it the way that Christ calls you to, uh, but you will repent and in the strength of Christ, which he always promises you, right? He pours out the spirit of God onto your life that you might have assurance, that you might have intimacy, that you may walk with him in real terms. He gives you what you need. So the repentance is immediate, it's in practice, you actually do it, it's on God's terms, and he, it's in God's power that you do this. Um, so here's one conclusion you can make from what I'm saying. So you're saying that if you're a Christian you don't sin? No, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, John says that right off the beginning. If we say that we have no sin in 1 John 1, 8, we deceive ourselves. In fact, he says you don't even understand the truth. He says, no, but if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to pull the weight off of you, to pull the stain out of your life, right? Um, so yeah, grace doesn't make sin safe. You cannot hold on to Jesus and to sin. So what is this strange verse about praying for somebody and not praying for somebody else? I don't know. I, was, I had a week to look at it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Sometimes when you have a complex text, you have to step back and step back and look at it in context. Sometimes if you look at it too small, you're just like, you're going to pull it apart. Here's what I believe it means in context. Yes, when a sibling stumbles, somebody in Christ, you pray for repentance, right? Friends don't let friends worship other gods, right? You just don't do that. Hey, man, you're on a runaway truck. This is not going to end well. I love you in Christ. I'm going to say some hard things. Um, you, don't, you pray for them. And also what we learned last week is when you pray, God gives. So when you're praying for someone, Jesus will respond. God is going to respond to that. So you should have great encouragement. Here's how you don't want to pray. We get this idea in our head sometimes. We'll say, you know what? I know Jesus, and I've had this great experience. He's cleansed me from sin. He's, he's, he's my Lord. Like, I love God. But, you know, this other, this, I have a friend of mine, and, like, they just don't get the Jesus thing, and they probably never will. I get it. They won't. So I'm just going to pray for God to just, like, save them somehow. Or we start giving people hope outside of Jesus. I think that's basically what John is saying. That, you know, that's not even a prayer. 
don't pray that way, friend. Don't, don't buy this story that the false teachers are bringing back into this church, that there's ways to salvation that are either an end around or outside of Christ. There's other ways to do this. No, that's not a prayer. That's a curse. So don't even pray that way. Um, don't be thinking Jesus is good for me, but um, maybe not for everybody else. Hebrews 3.12 really picks up on this. Take care, brothers, church, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Every day. You cannot do this on your own. You can't, Christian, you cannot exist in the life that God wants for you without the prayers of these people right here. Can I, I can promise you, I've tried so hard. If there's a way to do it, I would tell you. I would throw the Bible away and tell you. You cannot do it. You cannot do it outside of the people that God has lumped you together with, right? This is why First John always calls us kids. Kids belong together in the family, right? But idolatry will always refuse to let go of my truth. It's like, you might be right, Pastor, and the Bible probably has some good things to say, but here's what I've experienced. And your truth and how you experience what you need becomes more important, and you will not let go of it. That does not end well. Right? So ask yourself this question. At the end of the day, here's a test for you. Whose voice is most plausible to you? Is it your inner voice? Is it you? Don't let it be. Are you saying I don't have to judge? And yeah, of course you do. Right? You're not a robot. Yes, you have to, you have you have to you exercise agency and make a decision. But your your own voice can when your own voice becomes the most plausible to you, you're probably worshiping a false god. It's probably not your own voice. Right? Let God's word lead you. Let God's spirit lead you. Let God's people lead you. If we're going to hold on to Christ, we've got to let go of sin. It's going to steamroll you. Again, I promise you, it's happened to me. So holding on to Christ, you've got to let go of everything else, first sin. Secondly, control. Um, Verse 19, he says this, we know... Right? We have settled conviction that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Um, think about power for a minute. What does power do to you? Um, it exerts influence. It gets work done. It changes things in your life. The kind of power he's talking about is possession. So possession is always power. Whatever you hold on to is going to be your power. So you may believe in your heart of hearts that you will eventually find a way to take hold of life, that you will find a way to exercise some agency. You will find a way to change and change others, um, that you will save yourself. But I just don't believe that. First um, John shows us two positions here. You're either under power or you're in power. Under power in this way, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In one regard, all of us as a society, as a culture, as humanity are moving in one direction, our own direction away from God, right? The world does that. Uh, So you're either under power or you're in power. Meaning this, we are operating in faith. We are united to all the blessings of Christ through faith. And I am, as the scripture says here in verse 18, 
No, no, it's not 18. I don't know where it's at. It's right here. In him who is true in his son, Christ. You're in him. You're in power. You're in Christ. He is your blessing. He's your sufficiency. He is your righteousness. He is your sacrifice. He is everything. Either you're in power through faith or you're under power, under the power of the evil one, under the sway of what culture disciples you in. It's going to be one or the other. Um, and it's, you're, you're not going to exercise control in that way. So it says in verse 18, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. As the song just said, you are no longer a slave to fear. Do you know this? In Christ, you are untouchable. Nothing else will give you that protection. Nothing else. Because no one else loves you like that. No one else. You are untouchable. Yes, the world and Satan and and your own nature will influence you, but it will not drive you. Um... Have you ever seen a runaway truck ramp? No? Okay. Well, here's what it is. I have, and I know what they do, because that was my first job. I used to drive a big truck. And um, they're fun to drive, actually. Sometimes when you're driving the mountains, you'll see you're coming down a grade, and it has weird signs like, 3% grade, watch your brakes. And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm driving a Prius, right? But then you'll see this big gravel thing. It says runaway truck ramp, two miles. And you're like, what is that thing? And it's basically it just swerves off of the road when you're coming down a mountain. And it's a big bed of gravel. Um, they're very important. And I'll tell you why. Here's what happens with a truck. Um, it's like they can be weighted up to 80,000 pounds. When you're coming down a hill and you're, using, you're not shifting correctly and you're just riding the brakes, do you know what happens? The brakes heat up, right? Because heat is always a function of work. But depending on the material, once you get past a certain heat factor in your brakes, they start becoming less effective. So what do you do when brakes become less effective and you're going downhill too fast? You push harder. And the harder you push, the hotter the brakes become, and guess what? The less effective they come. It's called a runaway truck. If you've ever happened, it's ever happened to you in a car or a truck, it's terrifying. You're like, I'm picking up speed, I'm accelerating, everything's against you. The harder I press these brakes, the worse they work. So the runaway truck ramp is for those runaway trucks to like, you're out of options, you can't shift anymore because you're way too fast, and you take the gravel bed, and the only way to save yourself is trans, you have to somehow transfer this energy into impact. And that happens in the gravel bed, and if you're lucky, you get out alive. Um, that's, that's a great picture of idolatry. You will believe you're in control. You will believe that if you have... A reputation where people love you or you have a body where people love you or you have money and you can, you're in control, it's worse than a runaway truck because you, you're, you're staying on the road. You believe you've got this thing under control and it, it ends in a crash. You refuse to let go of control. You refuse to take your hands off the wheel. So not only should you be asking whose voice is most plausible, I know, friends, there's people in this room and I... You've drawn a line in the sand, and you said, and you said, Lord, this far, but no further. You cannot, you, you don't get this part of my life. Jesus has you all, or he doesn't have you. He's not interested in being a friend 
honestly. He calls you a friend, but he's, he's not there for that. He's there to be your Lord. You are designed to be in a love, trust, relationship with him. Your plan of peace. Let's talk about that for a minute. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true eternal God. Let's play a game. Finish this sentence. For me, life is all about fill in the blank. Now you guys are like, oh, we've seen you do this before. This is a sucker punch. We're not doing it. Think about that. How do you answer this question? For me, life is all about this. How do you fill it in? Is it about my kids? Is it about my education? Is it about finding someone? What is your life about? How you answer that is how you're trying to remove conflict and try to, this is your plan of peace in life. This is what's going to make like Work, life work for you. Uh, let me read you a, a person who lost everything and how he answered that. Philippians 121. Maybe you know it's going here. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on to say that if I'm judging the surpassing worth of knowing Christ versus everything else I am and have, there's just no contest. Everything else is below the line of zero. I will not hold on to anything um, at the expense of Christ. In fact, he goes as far as to say everything else is dung. That's a nice word of, you know, I'm not, I just can't say it. I'll get in trouble. But everything compared to Christ is that. All right, so let's, let's get real for this for a minute. Um, I'm going to put up a little graph on the screen. Well, I'm not going to do it. Somebody else is. And we're going to talk about how you answer that question. For me to live is what? Because this is how the chapter ends. Keep yourself from idols. I want you to feel the dynamic of this at work in your life right now. Now there's four categories up there. You see power, approval, comfort, and control. These are general categories where our hearts will seek idolatry. You're not, if you can't find yourself up here, then you yourself are your own idol. Or you're just, you're just not seeing it. Ask the Lord now to help you understand it. Let me walk you through it. Um, if you're seeking, if power, if you've got to have power in your life, if this is the thing that is essential to your life, you need to have success and you need to have influence, then your version of hell is humiliation. The lack of power, weakness. The people in your life and around you that have relationships with you will feel the heat of that influence and they will feel constantly used by you. And a lot of times the way this comes out is in your explosive anger. Your worshiping power. Approval. You have got to have your reputation You've got to have affirmation. You've got to be loved. And if you aren't loved the way that you love other people, there is hell to pay. Because this is your salvation story. I need that. So your version of hell is rejection. The people around you will feel overwhelmed with your relationship and smothered by you. And you're a coward. You will do nothing that makes anybody mad that you value 
because you're afraid they're going to run away. And so you really can't have a relationship, which is ironic, because that's the only thing you care about. By the way, I know I told you you shouldn't do this. That's me. That's always been me in life from high school on. If I could manipulate your opinion of me, I'd feel safe. Comfort. This is you guys. Privacy and freedom. Give it to me. You know what I hate? You know what my version of hell is? Continuing demands on my life. In fact, if I can think about it, it stresses me out, which, again, is hell for me. I can't deal with stress. I can't even deal with it. Leave me alone. My version of hell is you. And you want something from me. Right? And I make everyone around me feel neglected to some point. And a lot of times I experience boredom because I isolate everyone. Because I, I feel like that's where my happy place is, but it's not. And lastly, control. Man, this is a big one. If, if control is your God, you're good at self-discipline, you live by the standards, and your nightmare scenario, your version of hell is an uncertain world where everything changes. What was good yesterday isn't good today. What you said didn't come true. You just can't live in that world. And everybody feels the wrath of being condemned by you when it does change. And you just can't stop worrying. Because you live in a world that's never the same. Right? You don't step in the same river twice. We've heard that before. Life never is the same. See, this is idolatry. Maybe we don't call it approval. Maybe I use my money to buy things that make people like me. Maybe I use my body to make me feel like I'm in control. Maybe I use relationships to feel like I'm affirmed and I'm loved. These are actually not bad things. These are good things turned into a God thing. If you're trying to hold on to Christ and trying to hold on to this other thing, you're going to have to let go of one of them. You, know, you have to. See, I, I believe this. I believe that in this age of our church, our church right here, Portico, God wants to do some things. Right? He wants to do works of power in your life and in your church and in our community. Freedom from things you've never been free from. Physical healings, mental healings, spiritual healings, a peace you've never had before. But it ain't going to happen because you won't let go of something. And you won't get people to help you. It actually, this operates just like addiction. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The reason he ends that way is because it sums up the whole book. You will never have assurance if you're worshiping two lords. Maybe you're worshiping the wrong God. So there's a huge problem with putting this up here. It's going to make you play defense. You can hear this. And you can hear, hey, you know, holding on to Christ means letting go of everything else, your sin, your control, your peace, all that. And you can believe that your job now is, is, is to play defense. I've got to get rid of these idols. I've got to make sure my heart is clean. Make sure, and it's, it's no, no, no. It doesn't work. You know why? Because you hold on to what you love. The whole point of this book is to fall in love with Jesus. 
you cling to what you love. If you do not love God, if you don't understand how you've been loved by God, it's going to just be in a religious exercise. It's going to wear you out, man. Have no other gods before me. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You will hold on to what you love. So the key to get rid of idols, yes, put them to death. But the only way that really works is if you love and trust the Savior. This is where this book goes. This is how this book ends. This is what God wants for you right now. Right? Um, you have got to understand how Jesus dealt with your sin. He wiped it out. Right? He was touched by evil. Not just touched, he was crushed by evil for you. Not to hold something over your head and say, see, I did that. Now can't you do something? He's crazy about you. If you don't love him, you don't understand it. And you believe you're going to have to deal with your own sin. Your control, yes, friend, you're a creature. Deal with that. You play in a sandbox that you didn't create. You're created to love and to trust and to image and to be in intimate relationship with your creator. Jesus is in control at the right hand of the Father. You'll be okay with that. Trust him there. Um, and your plan of peace. He desires to be your peace, right? That's it. There is no other peace. Everything else is going to be a wasted war. The holding on to Christ requires falling in love with him, quite frankly. He wants that from you. And for, for some of us, we're like, what? That we just had to believe the gospel. Yes, that's where it starts. But as you understand and believe the gospel, there's no way. Take your eyes off these idols and start looking at your Savior, and there's no way not to build true and lasting affection for him. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine um, a couple days ago. And we were just talking about this. We spend so much time in the defensive posture and backing up from these things. That's not how love works, man. You, you hold on to what you love. You know this with people, with everything that you've got. So as we end this, hold here. Hold on to Jesus. Know him. Love him. Trust him. Give him your life. Let go of everything else. Um, that's what God is calling us to do today. And if you've never done that to start with, um, you're never going to have peace. You're never going to find security. You're never going to find value and meaning in anything that you're seeking outside of the living God. This is what First John wants. This is what God wants you to know. So give yourself to him. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, you don't, you don't want our obedience, empty, begrudging submission. You want love. Not because you need it from us. You want us to be loved by you and return that, God. You want us to see your glory, Lord. You want us to see your love for us and your ongoing acceptance of us, Jesus, according to your work and not ours, and to exhale and to receive it and to rest. Lord, my prayer for us today as a church is that every, everything that stands against you in our hearts would be destroyed and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and that we would never look back and that for people in this, in this building right here today, you would loosen strongholds, Lord, of sin, of fear, of anxieties, Lord. You would heal people. That you would bring people to a place of trust that we might together say, 
What manner of love is this? That we have been made the children of God and so we are. Let us walk forward in your love and love you with all that we have. In the name of Jesus, amen.